Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. And so um, last week we took a moment and we defined what the gospel was. And for many of us, if we were asked the question, what is the gospel? We have a bunch of different answers and a lot of creative answers as to what the gospel might be. And for many of us, that answer has to do with our sin, Jesus coming to live here on this earth, to die for our sins, and that someday we will get to live and be in heaven. And for as much as all of those things are true, what we discovered is that that's not really what the word the gospel means or what, how it was understood in its day when it was proclaimed or even how it's understood by the biblical authors. And so what we learned last week was that the word gospel was actually a pro- proclamation of good news, but it was good news for the empire. And so what would happen is that whenever Rome would annex a new city or new territory, there would be a person called an evangelical, the person carrying the good news, that would go into that annexed city or town and say, Caesar is Lord. And that would be the good news. The gospel at that time was whenever a king was either born or a king had ascended the throne, or Caesar had ascended the throne. And so this would happen on a regular basis. And what would happen is that they would come in, say, Caesar is Lord. And in that moment, you would have a choice. You would have the choice of your response. You could either bow down and worship that Caesar, or that Lord, or that king, or you could die. And so what we learned last week is that our gospel is different in the sense that, yes, it comes in the proclamation of the gospel. If we were to boil it right down to four simple words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply this. It is just that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, the historical Jesus who's come and lived, Christ, the proclaimed and prophesied Messiah, is meaning that he's not only died but has been resurrected and is currently living with us and within us, and that he is Lord, that he is king over our lives, that he is king over all of creation. This is the gospel that is proclaimed. And this is what it means to have kind of the gospel over everything. And then today we're going to continue in our series and begin to look at what our response to that gospel message is. Because our gospel comes and it tells us not not that convert or die, but that we are already dead. And that Jesus comes to offer us a new kingdom and a new hope. The hope that we would live again, a hope that we would come from death to life, that we would be resurrected one day and that his kingdom would be established and that to that kingdom there would be no end. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And so this is also the vision series that we have for our church. Before it was gospel, community, mission, and now we have changed that vision to be gospel over everything. And then underneath that, kind of three different responses to the gospel. The first being worship, the second being discipleship, and the third being mission. And so today we're going to focus on worship. We're going to focus on what the response of worship is and what the response of worship looks like. And so whenever the gospel is proclaimed, like I said before, when Caesar, when the evangelical comes, proclaim Caesar is Lord, you had a choice. You had a response that you could make. And so the gospel always solicits some type of response. And that response today that we're going to talk about is worship. And it is this place where we worship who Jesus is, how he is Lord over our lives, and what he has done, and how he is bringing us to new life 
in himself. So if you've turned to Luke chapter 4, this is where we're going to look at our main text this morning. Our main text comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Jesus has been brought out into the desert, and he's currently being tempted by Satan. And so this is what the text says. It says, The devil took him up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, I will give you all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. But then Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Would you guys pray with me? Dear Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have to come together and dig into the question of what it is to worship. To dig into our hearts and ask, what is our response to the gospel? The gospel has been proclaimed that you are Lord over all things. That you desire to be Lord over our lives. And God, I pray that this morning that we would turn to you, and that we would respond in worship that we would bow our hearts to you, that we would surrender our lives to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that we've done. And more importantly, we thank you for who you are, that you are the good king. In your name we pray, amen. And so when we look at this passage, when we look at this verse, what we see is that Jesus has offered two things from Satan. He's offered glory and he's offered authority. Two things which when we read it, we're like, that doesn't seem too slick there. Satan, because these are things that Jesus kind of already possesses. That's the way we kind of think of it. But the reality is that Jesus possesses these things once he's been glorified and once they've been given to him from God. And so in this place, the temptation of Jesus is to take these things, to take these positions of authority and glory instead of suffering for it and with it and through it for us and have it being generously given to him from his Father. And here... Jesus replies, no, I'm not going to take that. But we're to worship the Lord, our God, only. And it's here where I want to kind of define this word worship and what it means. The word worship appears both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. In the Hebrew, the word is shakah. And it means to bow down. It means to lay down in reverence. Every time this word is used in the Old Testament is this word shakah. And it means to bow down in reverence. In the Greek, the word is <laughs> proskuneo. And it's, this word proskuneo is kind of a, a compound word. It's two words. It's pros, which means to move towards, and kineho, which means to kiss. And so it means to kind of move towards with a kiss. And <laughs> the word together, proskuneo, when it's used in the Greek, means the same thing as the word shaka means, and that is to to bow down in reverence, or to move towards someone to kiss their hand in reverence. That's kind of the way that this word was used. And so when the Bible uses the word worship, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about bowing down. It's about laying prostrate. It's about moving towards someone with this kind of intimate, vulnerable, honorable kiss that says, you have glory and authority over me. And so I want to read this passage again with kind of that definition in mind. And so here it says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time he said to them, 
to him, Today I will give you all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will, and the word is worship, so if you will bow down before me, or if you move towards me with a kiss, all of it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall only bow down before the Lord your God, or move towards with a kiss the Lord your God, whom you shall serve. To me, I think this rendering of the passage just makes it just a little bit more intimate and a little bit more practical when we think of worship. Because oftentimes when we think of worship, it tends to be this kind of nebulous, spiritual, kind of undefined thing that we do on Sunday that maybe we do with our lives, but we're not really sure what worship really means. And so it's really nice to have a nice, concrete, physical (laughs) expression of what worship is. And when we look in the New Testament, we see this physical expression being exemplified in the people when Jesus Christ is kind of declared Lord. If you guys would turn to Matthew chapter 2, or if you'd want to note Matthew chapter 2, the Magi have come to see Jesus. Jesus has been born, and they have come seeking him. (laughs) And this is what it says in Matthew 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. If you jump down to verse 10, it says, And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. It's kind of redundant, right? I mean, they fell to the ground, which means they worshipped. Like the word worship means to kneel, to bow down to in this place, the word worship is kind of an adjective describing what their falling down was about, why they fell. So these men, they come, they've traveled from the east, they've been seeking the king. This gospel has been proclaimed. They've heard word from some way that a king has ascended, and their response is to come and seek him out. And when they come and seek him out, they fall before him, and they worship him. They move towards him with a kiss. It's a very physical act. This act of worship is. When we move to John chapter 18, this is when Jesus is being betrayed by Judas. We find another form of act of worship that happens. So in John chapter 18, we have Judas who has received a Roman battalion. And a Roman battalion at that time was of 600 men. So 600 men come marching out to arrest Jesus. Of officers and chief priests and the Pharisees, and they come there with lanterns and torches. And so Jesus, knowing all these things that were about to come upon him, he went forth, and they said to him, no, he went to them, sorry, he said to them, who is it that you seek? So Jesus comes out to these people and he asks them, who do you seek? And they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am. Now, a lot of your texts might say, I am he, but the he is added into your translations. But the word is just the I am. He kind of says, he answers, I am. And if we know from the Old Testament, this name I am is the name that Moses was given for who God is when the people were to ask, who is it that has sent you? You are to say, I am has sent you. And so Jesus says, I am. And so Judas also, who was there betraying him, standing there with him. And so he said... <laughs> And so when he said to them, I am, 
they fell to the ground. And therefore, again, he asked them, who is it that you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And so what's crazy here is that at the name of Jesus, when Jesus says, I am, all these men, 600 men, strong men with weapons, torches, they fall down. There's kind of this involuntary worship that happens. It's kind of this kind of prequel to what we find in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At the name of Jesus, there is instant kind of involuntary worship that's called out within our own souls. And finally, if we look to the resurrection in John chapter 20, what we see is we see Jesus worshiped and declared as Lord through one of Jesus' disciples. And this disciple is Thomas. Thomas has doubted the resurrection. And he kind of doubts his friends in the middle of it. I mean, here all of his friends had said, oh, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And Thomas is like, I, I don't know. I kind of need to see it with my own eyes. And what's crazy is that his friends are patient with him. Because Thomas is essentially calling his friends a bunch of liars here. But it says that his friends kept him around for a week, that he stayed around for a week, and that he was accepted into the community. Even though he doubted, even though he didn't believe, they welcomed him in. And that Jesus appears, and this is what happens when Jesus appears. It says, Jesus came through the doors, even though they had been shut, and stood in their midst. And he says to them, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas specifically, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here and put your hand into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. We see here Thomas <laughs> explaining and proclaiming the gospel in worship that Jesus Christ is Lord and that Jesus Christ is our God. And so in all of these instances, what we see is that worship is a public proclamation, public and outward proclamation to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things. And I'd say that in many ways, we embody this truth today. We worship with our bodies. And we worship with our bodies through baptism. We come and we hear the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we respond to that in worship through the obedience of baptism. We respond and say, I am in. And we follow Jesus' commandment and Jesus' example to be immersed into into the waters of baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of our sins. And so (laughs) we do this. We embody it also in our obedience. Last week when we talked about the gospel, this word obedience tends to be just a naughty word. We hate the idea of submission. We hate the idea of having to obey. But what we find is, is that in obeying the commandments of Jesus, in obeying the life that Jesus has laid out before us to live and to follow, we are, in effect, responding to the gospel and allowing Jesus to be Lord over our lives. If we don't obey our command, his commandments, how can he be Lord? But if we are obeying his commandments, then we have put him in the rightful place as Lord over our lives. And so it's in our obeying through our physical acts that we respond to the gospel and this truth that he is Lord. 
We also respond through song and through prayer. And in all of these things, through prayer, baptism, song, we kind of physically proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's all a proclamation of the gospel. But I would also say that I think we also suffer from another problem in the sense that although we embody worship in those ways, I think there are some ways in which we kind of lack a physical embodiment of worship. I mean, if the word is literally to bow, to lay prostrate, I mean, it's just something that we just don't do in our culture. It's just something that we don't necessarily have ingrained in us to do. But I would say it's something that we need to be able to physically position ourselves to be able to worship God better. And that there are physical positions that we can put our body in that allow us to engage in worship in ways that we wouldn't be able to engage in worship if we were in some other type of physical position. And so the way I like to think about it is like exercising. Like if you were to show up to a Zumba class and you were to just kind of like stand there, that'd be kind of weird, right? Like, because you're there to exercise. And we automatically know that exercise, like, means that it gets physical. And we come every Sunday morning and we come to a worship service. And sometimes we just kind of stand here. And if you were there with a first century Christian, it'd be kind of weird. Because they'd be like, I thought this was a worship service. And in a worship service, we move, we bow, we surrender, we dance, we get active. I know that's something that is really foreign and really unfamiliar to us. And so I just want to kind of challenge us our understanding, our perception of what worship might be and how might we could embody worship corporately in different ways. And I think there's some really just like simple ways because we have some emblems of surrender in our culture. Like you can raise your hands. That's a way of surrender, saying, I surrender. You can raise your hands forward and say, I surrender. I'm surrendering. You know, maybe it's not a surrender posture that you need, but you need a a posture of adoration. And so maybe it looks like kneeling, like Mary kneels at the feet of Jesus. Or the woman who wipes Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair, she kneels in adoration of who Jesus is. And so how can we physically position ourselves to engage in worship in a way that is just a little bit more beyond just heart exercise. But it engages our entire being, our entire holistic body that Jesus has given us and has promised to resurrect us in. Because it's with this body. It's not going to be with our mind. It's not going to be with our disconnected spirit that we are going to worship our God in heaven. But it's going to be with our bodies that he has brought breath and life back into again. And so maybe the idea of engaging in that type of worship in this space is like extremely and horrifically uncomfortable. And I understand that and I get that. And so maybe for you, maybe the first step in the first place that we need to begin is just in our own homes. I was once challenged by a friend that he said, I just challenge you to wake up every day this week and as your feet hit the floor, you put yourself prostrate. You bow down before the living God and you lay down before him, and you just proclaim the gospel out loud over yourself and over the space that you're in, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And just allow that exercise and that practice to happen over the course of the week and see how that exercise and that practice changes your heart 
and changes your actions throughout the day. He's like, you'll be blown away. And it's amazing. It's amazing to start the day on your face before the living God. It doesn't take long. You just quiet your soul. You're already pretty quiet. You just woke up. Don't fall back asleep. (laughs) But lay there, forehead on the ground. Jesus Christ is Lord. And get up and go about your day. And live your life in the shadow of what you've just done physically and what you've just proclaimed physically. Say it out loud. Allow the gospel to be proclaimed in your heart and in your life. Now for as much as I am about worship being physical and worship being embodied, I also want to kind of give this disclaimer that it is very possible for us to do everything physical and to make, you know, we could have this amazing raucous of like just outward expression of physical activity it could look like a Zumba class in here, and we would not be worshiping. It is very possible for that to exist. And so worship is much deeper than just these physical manifestations, but I just wanted to highlight kind of on the side that I think that worship is much more physical than what we initially kind of approach it as. I think we initially approach it as kind of this nebulous, disconnected, highly spiritual engagement of our minds when actually it's a connection of our heart and our bodies physically manifesting that brings glory and honor and ultimately submission and authority to Jesus Christ in response to the gospel that he is Lord. And so the question then is, well, how do we worship then? How do we worship and how do we engage in worship in our daily lives? How do we worship and engage worship here corporately? I think first and foremost that it it does have to become embodied. And that it cannot remain this kind of nebulous spiritual other. Um, when you read Romans chapter 12, 1, I think it's poorly translated in most translations. The King James Version is the one that kind of translates this, I believe, properly. And so Romans 12, 1 often says, you know, <laughs> surrender your bodies as living sacrifices, as your spiritual act of worship. And oftentimes, because the word spiritual has this kind of nebulous, disconnected idea in our society, and since worship also seems like a spiritual term, we tend to just say, oh, it's that thing that I do in my mind. It's that thing that I do with my eyes closed. It's that thing that I do over there that's kind of separate and holy and disconnected from everything else in my life. But when you read the verse in the King James Bible, and as you read it, as I believe it's properly rendered in the Greek, it is that (laughs) present your bodies as living sacrifices as your reasonable service to the Lord. And if you look at Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 11, up until that point, he is explaining the gospel. He's explaining what Jesus Christ has done for us and through his son Jesus. And so we get up to chapter 12, and chapter 12 is like kind of the, so now what? So now what do we do with that? What is the response to this gospel that's laid out in the first 11 chapters of Romans? And what we find is that giving our bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to him is seen as a reasonable service. And I believe that this is what worship kind of looks like. That living as a reasonable service unto the Lord in response to the gospel that he is king over all things. And so how do we worship? And I think that we worship embodied in kind of three different ways. And I think the hope and the purpose of worship it's kind of this threefold. And the first one is that in worship we would proclaim. That we would proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That we would proclaim the gospel. 
The second thing is that we would <laughs> respond in prayerful worship. That our prayers would be covered in kind of a worship and a bowing down and kneeling toward God. And then finally, that we would worship our God in song. That we would worship Him in song, in praise, and in hymns. So I want to look at kind of these three different areas. Like I said at the very beginning, when an evangelical would come into the town and declare, Caesar's Lord, you had a response that you had to make. And when you responded, when you bowed down to Caesar, when you proclaimed that Caesar is Lord, and you agreed with that, you were making a proclamation. You're making a proclamation of something that you believed. And this proclamation was significant because it said that we give our lives, we give our physical bodies to this empire, to this kingdom that has come. And whenever the Roman government would come in and seize your kingdom, you would proclaim Caesar is Lord. And then you would <laughs> you'd also proclaim that the kingdom of God would advance. And then you would say that in the kingdom of God, you would find your hope and your salvation. Because at this time, Caesar was equated with being God, with being the son of God in his kingdom. And for all intents and purposes of the Roman government, like any other physical empire, was to expand and to provide protection. And so if you were a part of that system, and if you got annexed, your hope of your salvation was that Rome would do well. If Rome did well, then you probably did well. If Rome did poorly, then you probably did poorly. If Rome protected and grew, then you probably felt more safe and more secure. And these people would be the hope of your salvation. And you see that this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ runs along cultural lines was incredibly, incredibly subversive. Because it's not proclaiming that Caesar is Lord, but that Christ is Lord and that his kingdom is greater and that his kingdom provides a greater salvation, a greater protection, and a greater hope than what the Roman Empire and what Caesar could do. And so when we respond to the gospel, when we respond in worship, we are proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. When we read in Deuteronomy, sorry, when we read in Luke chapter 4 here, when Jesus says that we are to worship our God alone, the Lord our God alone, he is referencing Deuteronomy chapter 16. I mean, sorry, Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6 says this, it says, so you shall fear the Lord and serve him. And it goes on saying that you shall also not worship the other gods around you because your God is a jealous God. And if we look at the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6, what we see that's happening bigger is kind of an explanation of worship. Why do we worship? And the first reason that we worship in Deuteronomy is this. He says specifically, Make sure that you keep the commands, that you keep Christ as Lord, that you fear and serve him, so that you do not fall back into slavery, which the Lord has delivered you. And so we worship to remember what God has done and who God is. But we also worship, it says, to declare to the next generation who that God is, how he has saved us from our slavery, and how he wants to continue to save generation after generation after generation from falling into slavery. And so we worship to proclaim who God is and what he has done. And so we bow down with our lives. And it's in our lives that we declare 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's much bigger than just gathering on a Sunday morning, but it's with our very lives, it's with the, every action that we take that hopefully we are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that the way that we live would proclaim it to our children, that would proclaim it to our co-workers, that would proclaim it to the world around us, that Jesus is King. And that that's a really good thing. And that that is really, really good news. I believe the second way that we worship is with prayer. When we look at the Lord's Prayer and some of the first opening lines of the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. Continues with your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But this idea of God's name being holy, being set apart, being revered is a deep Jewish idea. The reality is that in the Hebrew nation of Israel, they would not even begin to try to utter the name of the word, uh, the name that was the word of God. The word of God was so holy that it was unspeakable. It was so holy that it was hard to be fully understood and fully grasped, that God was bigger than them, that God was bigger than their understanding of the way that they could get their minds around him. They weren't there to, to try and understand him fully and completely, but they were to understand him in the way that he has revealed himself to them. And so they kept his name holy to the point that they wouldn't even say it. And the closest thing that they would come to kind of any type of utterance of the name of God would, be, would have been a breath. And they would have come to the name of the word of God, to the name that would have been the word of God in the, in the text as they're reading out loud. There would just be kind of a breath that would be given. Just, that would represent who God was. And it's from breath, and it's from the word breath in Greek that we get the word spirit. It's also in this idea of God being breath that we see in Genesis chapter 1 where God breathes his spirit into his creation. It's in Ezekiel chapter 34 where we see that at the resurrection, God is going to breathe his breath into creation again, making all things new. It's here where the name of God is found just in our passive breathing. Things that we don't even realize half the time. I want you to take notice of your breath right now. How it just kind of happens. How it's a gift that's given. How it's kind of this mystery of life. The rabbis used to believe that all of creation was in kind of this passive proclamation that God is Lord through our breath. That all of creation is worshiping. That everything that has breath in it is proclaiming the name of God. It's kind of beautiful. It kind of brings you back again to that Philippians chapter 2 where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. That in our breathing, the earth is singing the name of God. That we are in praise together to the, the mystery that brings life. And the mystery that's going to bring life Again, it's from this construct and this understanding that reflects kind of this holiness of God. It's a reverence. It's a respect. It's a fear, as it's said in Deuteronomy. It's kind of an honor. And to be honest, when we talk about these words, when we talk about God in ways of reverence and fear and respect and submission, 
They're not like friendly words. They kind of feel like cold words. They kind of <laughs> create a picture of a cold and distant God. And I think the reason for that is that we live in a world where we've seen these words become abused by the powers that be. And that oftentimes when we find ourselves in this world having to submit, it's often to some type of oppressor. Or it's often because we've been caught and there's going to be consequence. And so when we talk about physical manifestations of submission, it might be difficult to think of like raising your hands or offering your arms out because that feels like a rest. That feels like I've been caught and the thing that's about to happen next isn't going to be pleasant. The idea of even laying prostrate again is a form of submission that we have in our society where we, where we lay down and we submit to the authorities that be. And often what comes next is not pleasant. Even the idea of kneeling is not good in submission because of what, how they might abuse their power over us next. And so I get it. I get how these physical manifestations of submission in our world, in our culture, in our society today are incredibly uncomfortable because normally if we find ourselves in that position, it's not good for us. And then we talk about how God wants to be revered, how God is holy, how God is to be feared, we begin to think, oh man, there's this cold and distant God that's ready to just expel his wrath upon us. And I just want to say that these things are incredibly far from the truth. And that what we have in our God is a God that's incredibly near, a God that's incredibly loving, and a God that is not ready to abuse you when you place yourself under submission to him that he is here to love you, that he's here to be patient with you, that he's here to forgive you, that he's here to walk with you and live within you and dwell within you, that he's here to, to flip our, kind of our cultural imagination of what submission is on its head. And so this morning that we confess that we have these broken images of our God, that we accuse him of being distant, that we accuse him of being cold, that we accuse him of being wrathful and vengeful, and that we keep him at arm's length because of these things, because of the abuses that we see in our world and our society today. But this morning, I want to invite us to see submission to him in a brand new way, where we see him inviting us into his love, inviting us into his protection, inviting us into his kingdom, where there is real hope and real salvation. And that this is what worship looks like, and that we could go to him in prayer with faith and security, knowing that we are heard and that we are, our words could be short and that our words could be few. Because our God already knows our needs and that we would just come to him with boldness and proclaim to him that, and trust in him that he is a good father and that we would submit to him our request and that, that we would then submit to him and trust him that he is Lord and that he has authority over all things in our lives and that whatever happens will be and that it will be for his good and for his glory and for his kingdom and for his purposes. Which is an incredibly hard place to be because I don't know if you're like me when I come to prayer and I come to worship God in prayer. I come with my laundry list of like wish list and like, God, could you be a vending machine? Can I just hit C4 and get what I'm looking for? Maybe rattle the machine a little bit and I'll get something for free. This is how I think a lot of us kind of approach our prayer life with God is that we want to be Lord over him and make him submit to our demands and our decrees and our hopes and our wishes. 
instead of coming to him humbly and allowing the gospel to shape our prayer life, the gospel to shape our worship, that he is Lord and that we are here to submit to him and that we are here to trust him. And yes, we get to share our heart with him. And yes, he wants to hear our heart. He wants to hear our heart intimately and deeply. But ultimately, we give those things up to him and say, God, we trust you. We trust you with open arms. We trust you with bended knees. That you are the good God who loves and who saves us. And who has our best in mind. And so we worship him with our declaration. We worship him in our prayer. It's my prayer this morning. I just want to pray this morning that God, you would transform our prayers. That we would pray gospel prayers. That we would pray prayers that declare you as king. And that you would give us prayers to pray for your kingdom to come. And for your kingdom to grow within our hearts and to grow within our minds and to grow within our communities. And God, I pray that you would forgive us for our many words and our many attempts to make you our errand boy. God, I pray that you would give us courage and faith to face the struggles that we face day in and day out. And God, that you would provide us and sustain us and deliver us and be our salvation where we need you. Jesus, come. In your name, amen. The third way that we worship is in song. We worship in song. We come together and we sing. That's the thing that we do. That's like what the worship service is, right? Is that we come together and we sing and we get music and we get worship leaders and they lead us and they pick songs and they think through the service and we worship him in song. And in song, we declare that God is good. We declare that God is holy. We declare that Jesus is Lord. In song, we pray. These songs become our prayers. Have you guys ever been in a place where you just didn't know the words to say? You just didn't know the words to pray? And you're like, man, I'm dry. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray to God. And then you come across the song. And it gives words that your heart have been longing for. It gives you words that you've wanted to pray that you didn't know that you wanted to pray. And so it's in song that we find words for our prayers. It's in song that we declare that God is good. And it's in song that we are able to also lament. It's in song that we are able to mourn. It's in song that we're able to bring our complaints before God in frustration. I mean, you read some of the Psalms, you read Lamentations, it gets real dark real quick sometimes. But the thing that I love about the Psalms and the things that I love about Lamentations is that in nowhere is there a blame of God. And in nowhere is there an absence of thanksgiving. But it is full, filled full with thanksgiving, even in the darkest of times. I mean, I'll be reading a Psalm. I'll be reading Daniel. I'll be like, man, it's getting dark. It's getting dark. Yes, Daniel, you give it to God. And then I'm just like ready for him to like end it. And then no, he always brings this hook around where he gives thanks and praise to God, no matter how horrific his situation is, no matter how disappointed he is, no matter how bad it looks for him, he's always there to, to bring praise and thanks to God and submit himself under the lordship of who God is. When we look at Colossians chapter 3, it says this, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly, teaching and admonishing one another and all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. The Bible references singing 
400 times, over 400 times. The Bible gives the command to sing over 50 times directly. And what's awesome is that in this Colossians command, he kind of, again, is redundant. He says, sing psalms, which at the time were seen as praise songs. They were something to be sung. He says hymns, which were also written to be sung. And then he says spiritual songs, which were also sung. Three forms of singing. He's essentially saying sing, sing, sing. But what's beautiful is that he doesn't just say sing the psalms. He doesn't say just reflect on the past and what God has done. But he says write hymns. Look at what God is doing. And then he says write spiritual songs. Write songs of prayer and a prophecy of what God could do or could be doing or where God might be moving an entire body of people. And so what we need, I believe, is for the local church to begin to write some songs. What is the song that God has put on your heart? Now God has gifted some amazing musicians. He's positioned some people to kind of write some music, some good, some bad for the church. Some theologically accurate, some kind of not, but (laughs) he's put people in positions to write this, but you and I, he's been giving us the command to write some songs, to sing some songs. That as a tribe, we have some songs that we sing together. We have some songs that we know. When different worship leaders are leading, they're going to sing a certain song, and we can look forward to that and be like, all right, they're leading. They're going to lead our tribe in this tribal song that is ours, that is unique to our community. And there's unity and there's prayer and there's joy that's celebrated there. But I think we need to go deeper than that. What's beautiful is that the Psalms are kind of this poetry, this place where you can, like I said, mourn, lament, but it's also this place where you can celebrate and share joy. So I just want to challenge you that maybe this week it's not laying on the floor and proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord that you need to do, but maybe you need to take up a pen and paper and write down some songs. And then don't just leave them there, but share them. Share them with your small group. Share them with your community group. Maybe share them with a worship leader. Maybe, just maybe, someday we'll share it with the tribe. I believe that God has put song into us because song is powerful when it comes to worship because it does all three things that we've said worship kind of is. It proclaims that Jesus is Lord. It prays a prayer that submits that Jesus is Lord. And singing is incredibly physical. You can't just sit there and just kind of like cognitively, nebulously sing. It's not singing. Singing requires a voice. Singing requires us to physically engage in this declaration of who God is. And so it's my prayer and it's my heart this morning that we would move towards this heart of worship. And then on a final note, I must say, it's kind of as a word of caution and warning, is that there is a worship that God rejects. There is a worship that God rejects. And, I, and this, this worship that God rejects looks like this purely physical worship. There are many times where the people of Israel kind of fall into this place of going through the motions. And I feel like i got to bring up this warning because God has warned us through the prophets that this is very easy and susceptible for us as human beings to do because we like checklists and we like things to do. And so we like a way that we can just come in and just be like, boom, 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 boom. We worship today and we worshiped well. Good job, guys. And this is what happened 
in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. They would come into the temple. They would check off the list. They'd be like, I sacrificed this animal, this animal. Was it a perfect animal? No, but hey, some animal is better than no animal, right? I mean, you got to look in Malachi. <laughs> Not Malachi. Yeah. Yeah, Malachi. Yeah, the book of Malachi is about where God kind of rejects the worship of Israel. And then we also see it in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. And I just want to read this out loud. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and it's one that is one of correction. It's one that always just kind of like wakes me up. And so I pray that it would do the same for us this morning. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. I mean, that's some harsh language. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is who he's calling his beloved nation of Israel. He's trying to get their attention. He says, What to me is your multitude of sacrifices, said the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of your well-fed beasts that do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings of incense. It's an abomination to me. Your new moon and your Sabbath and your calling of convocations, I cannot endure the iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are full of blood. I mean, everything that he just listed here were things that God commanded Israel to worship him. Like, it's all listed in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those books that we barely read or understand, but it's in this place where it is the worship book of the Old Testament and kind of the checklist on how they ought to worship and proclaim that God is Lord of their lives. And what they've done is God is saying, all these things that I've commanded you to do, even though you're doing them, your heart's not in it. You're just physically checking the box. And I'm tired of bearing that. I'm tired of bearing that. But what's beautiful is that he doesn't end there, but he gives them a solution and he tells them, instead of just going through the motions, this is what I would rather you do. Instead of you offering all of these things and trying to fulfill all the spiritual checkboxes, this is the thing that I'd really love for you to do the most. And he says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead for the widow's cause. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sin might be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus has an incredibly different list, and even God has a completely different list for us to go than just checking these spiritual boxes. What Jesus wants is for the gospel to reign in our lives. He is Lord over all things. And what that means is that means living and looking out for his people, living for our neighbor, loving our neighbor, serving our neighbor, submitting to our neighbor, seeking out the widow's cause, seeking out justice, being intentional about the way that we live our lives, hearing the cry of the oppressed and coming to the rescue. This is what true worship looks like. And so we come together and we worship together, but we also come from this place and we don't just end worship when the service ends when we read the benediction, but that's kind of the kickoff into the rest of the week where we 
proclaim with all of our actions that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things and he's trying to redeem all things and make all things new again underneath him. And this is the good news. This is the good news that we get to go and proclaim as an evangelical to the rest of the world. So to recap, Jesus is Lord. To worship is to bow before him. Bowing is this kind of physical manifestation of an inward truth. And we proclaim through prayer and song, the gospel, and through our lifestyle. And it's my prayer this morning that we would be able to render our hearts to him who is truly worthy of our worship. Who's truly king of the world. Not Satan who's trying to deceive us. Jesus Christ, who's come and conquered death, that we would submit to him, that we'd bow to him this morning, that we'd allow him to be Lord over our lives because of who he is and for what he's done. We're going to take communion. There's going to be communion on both sides. We're going to spend some time singing together, proclaiming that God is good, proclaiming that he is Lord. We're going to spend some time reflecting maybe you do need to bow, maybe you do need to surrender, maybe you need some prayer. If you need some prayer, tap me on the shoulder. I'd love to pray for you in this space. This is a space where I want us to be able to be able to hear the Spirit and move and respond accordingly. So we're going to take communion. We're going to remember Jesus' sacrifice and his death and resurrection and how he is Lord over all things. And uh, we're going to celebrate that together. All right, would you guys pray with me? Dear Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we get to celebrate. We thank you that because you are king, that you do not rule a dull kingdom, but you rule a kingdom of life and of breath and of celebration and of joy and of reconciliation, of making all things new. So God, I pray that we would come before you with our hearts that might be full of mourning, that might be full of disappointment, that might be full of hurt, that God, you would hear those prayers, that you would heal them this morning. And that you would turn our sorrow into joy. God, that you would move us from death to life. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that you're King of kings and Lord of lords. In your name we pray. Amen.